0: We'll hear argument next, number 982060. Ronald Edwards versus Robert Carpenter. Good job, man. Sorry, I'm trying to get out of your way
1: here.
0: Mr. Foley.
2: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This habeas case is about the need for an explanation when a defendant misses his opportunity in state court to assert ineffective assistance of appellate counsel uh, in order to uh, reopen his original direct appeal. The Sixth Circuit here held that no such explanation is necessary before a federal court in effect may reopen the appeal, but that holding is serious error because it undermines the state's ability to have the reopened appeal occur in the same court that heard the original appeal. To put the matter more concretely, respondent here is seeking federal habeas relief on the ground that his guilty plea was invalid, but he didn't raise that claim in his original direct appeal. He asserts as cause for that default, ineffective assistance of appellate counsel, but he defaulted his ineffective assistance claim as well. The state permits a defendant to to raise ineffective assistance in order to revive a claim originally defaulted on direct appeal. Here the underlying plea-related claim. But respondent did not take advantage of that opportunity in state court in a timely manner under state law. And our position is that his failure to do so requires an explanation before the Federal Court can revive that defaulted claim, the the plea claim.
0: Mr. Foley, as I understand it, the District Court in this case held that there was not an adequate and independent State ground for the State Court ruling, and the Court of Appeals simply didn't pass on that. Is that right? Uh, That is correct. so that was, if, if we were to reverse on your point, that would be open in the Court of Appeals to the, to the respondent here.
2: Exactly. We're, we're asking this Court to reverse on the question presented in the cert petition, and it may remand for further determination on the adequacy issue. Uh, Is
3: there any suggestion here that the respondent can show cause and prejudice for the procedural default of the ineffective assistance of counsel claim?
2: We don't believe so, and for one reason is that he had a lawyer uh, in 1992 uh, in a time in which he could have raised his ineffective assistance claim. So we don't think he can make out the showing, but no court in this case has yet entertained the cause inquiry. Uh, neither what are you
4: supposed to do with his claim that, look, my, this lawyer on appeal, uh The reason that I didn't file my request on time there is because the Ohio statute, which sets up a procedure whereby an appellate court reopens a matter, was itself very confused in light of a Supreme Court decision, which suggests for this class of case, you didn't use that procedure, and therefore there was nothing to use. And that whole matter wasn't clarified. Until much later, and in respect to the time it was clarified, my thing was timely. Now, that's a very complicated question, but I guess that's what the district court went on here, didn't it? And anyway, what do we do with that?
2: Uh, no, Your, no, Your Honor. Uh, Respondent here missed multiple opportunities to raise his ineffective assistance claim. In 1991, at the end of his direct appeal, he could have brought that claim in a variety of forums, but he didn't bring it anywhere. In 1992, after the Ohio Supreme Court decided that Murnahan decision, that decision makes it clear how to bring that claim. And he could have brought it in 1992 after that decision, and he had counsel. He had new post conviction counsel at that time.
5: Mr. Poley, may I ask you to back up? Because as I understand Judge Justice Breyer's question, You have already said the district court ground is not the issue before us now, and that, indeed, if we reverse on the ground on which the Sixth Circuit rested, that would be wide open, that the grounds on which the district court ruled were never passed on by the Sixth Circuit, and they would be open to be considered on remand. Correct. So we should focus only on what the Sixth Circuit ruled, because — The district court's ruling would be open for review by the Sixth Circuit. Correct.
2: Uh, Respondent makes two points with respect to the adequacy ground that was not passed on by the Sixth Circuit. Uh, One, he says, that's an obstacle to this court reaching the question in the petition for certiorari, and that's incorrect. The question that we raised in the petition is properly before this Court. It was the question decided by the Sixth Circuit, and it was the question that Respondent indeed asked the Sixth Circuit to decide. And the, it was Respondent's view in the Sixth Circuit that you didn't need to address the adequacy
0: issue. Instead, decide, do
2: you, does, does the document
0: — Mr. Vogt, do you know whether a Respondent, in its brief in opposition to certiorari, made that point? I do know
2: the answer to that, and, and Respondent and did, did not object in, in the opposition to certiorari on that ground. In effect, recognizing that the question was properly presented, suggesting that it wasn't worthy of the Court's review. Uh, So to answer your question, Justice Ginsburg, uh, the, the question the Sixth Circuit decided is properly here. Now, Respondent also raises the adequacy issue as an alternative ground our view is that that should be remanded because the Sixth Circuit didn't didn't reach it. But if this Court does reach that issue as an alternative ground, we think the Court should reject it as without merit because, as I was suggesting, for two reasons. First, uh, he had multiple opportunities to raise his ineffective assistance claim. He could have raised it at three different times in three different years, and the state court ground was that he missed all those opportunities. And secondly, uh, Justice Breyer, in response to your question about the district court's reasoning, uh, the district court's view was that the uh, good cause standard in Ohio law uh, was there was some variation in the Your
4: answer to Justice Ginsburg resolves my question.
2: Okay. Turning then to the uh, the question that the Sixth Circuit decided. Our position is that the Sixth Circuit was wrong because the State's interest here is to have the plea claim, the originally defaulted claim, heard in the forum that it should have been heard in the first place. Uh, The allegation here is that it would have been heard in that forum but for ineffective assistance of counsel. If that's true, then what the state wants to do is to rectify that constitutional violation by restoring that plea claim to the forum that it should have been in the first place. But the Sixth Circuit's view frustrates the state's effort to get that claim back into the forum in which it belongs. If the federal court is permitted to entertain that plea claim without any showing of why the defendant respondent here did not take advantage of the state court opportunity. The state has a process for raising ineffectiveness claims to reopen a direct appeal. And what the Sixth Circuit does is it substitutes the federal court for that process. It makes the federal court engage in exactly the same reopening process because if the federal court hears that underlying plea claim and does so because it finds ineffective assistance as cause, then the federal court is doing precisely what uh, the state court wants to do. And the state court, as this, as this court's precedents make clear, the state needs to have the opportunity to do that. Now, we're not saying that uh, just because he missed the state court deadline means that he gets no habeas review no matter what. All we're asking for is that explanation, the cause and prejudice test. In other words, it's our position that where the Sixth Circuit error was was in failing to run this claim through the, the cause and prejudice analysis that applies in all procedural default contexts. That's what Coleman says. It talks about the uniformity of procedural default analysis, and that uniformity should occur in this context as well.
4: What bothers me about it is, I mean, it's a totally logical argument that you've made. And it is a state there's a constitutional claim, one, blocked by state ground. Right?
2: We're, we're then we have the
4: plate, the plate. step two. You can get around the state ground by asserting cause, blocked by a different state ground. I.e., cause wasn't done right. And I suppose you could have cause for getting around state ground two which could be blocked by State Ground 3. They didn't do that one right. And this could go on like Kepler's epicycles indefinitely, and no human being, let alone uh, a petitioner without any lawyer, would ever understand what to do. Now, the reason I put it is it seems to me there is a separate and different way to look at it, that, of course, the substantive claim can be blocked by a State Ground that's adequate. But the matter of cause is basically a question for the federal judge. And that cuts through everything, says, of course, with Carrier, you have to present it to the state court so they get a shot. But if they have four other state ground rules that stop it, that's their problem. The matter of cause for getting around the matter of is there a state ground for not hearing the prosecutorial claim, that's up to the state. But the matter of cause for getting around it, that's up to the federal judge. Basically. Now isn't that how we handle most matters of cause,
2: or is it? Uh, several uh, responses, Justice Breyer. First, I don't think we have an infinite regress problem here because we only have two steps. We had two defaults, and if respondent can show cause for that second default, you don't have to go any further. He does get habeas, federal habeas relief if he can show cause and prejudice or actual innocence under the test. So you don't have to look for a third or a fourth or an infinite, infinite regress. Now, as to the point about, well, yes, it is true that cause is a federal question. And there, there's no doubt that the cause inquiry as it applies to that underlying plea claim is a federal question. But he has asserted ineffective assistance as, a, as that cause. And Carrier makes it plain that once he asserts ineffective assistance is the cause, he has to do several things. First, he has to meet the Sixth Amendment standard for ineffective assistance. It can't simply be poor lawyering that doesn't meet the Sixth Amendment. And secondly, he must exhaust that Sixth Amendment claim in state court. So Carrier already tells us that when ineffectiveness is asserted as cause, we have to go back into the state system. And it is not sufficient to answer the third point, Of your question, it's not sufficient simply to have presentment or exhaustion because, as this court recognized unanimously last year in the O'Sullivan, this was the point where there was agreement in O'Sullivan, exhaustion must be coupled with procedural default analysis. And the reason is, as this court explained, is that procedural default doctrine protects the integrity of the exhaustion rule. Uh, So once Carrier says, that this ineffectiveness claim, the Sixth Amendment claim, the second part, which is asserted as cause for the underlying plea claim, once that has been raised, it has to go back to state court, not just for presentment, but for proper presentment. And that's why procedural default analysis must apply to both claims, the plea claim and the ineffectiveness claim. The Sixth Circuit held to the contrary and that's why it was erroneous.
6: It is one way, then, to state the difference between the parties in this case, that the difference is one of the definition of exhaustion, uh, that, he, that the uh, uh, respondent concedes there has to be exhaustion, but he defines it just in terms of presentment? Whereas you agree there has to be exhaustion, but you say exhaustion must be a proper presentment. Is is that the issue in the case?
2: Well, we definitely believe that there must be proper presentment, and we think that is the procedural default requirement. Because exhaustion would be satisfied uh, if a State like Missouri, which has a strict 90 day deadline, no exceptions whatsoever, exhaustion would be satisfied on day 91, no matter what the reason for the default. On day 91, we know as a matter of the exhaustion doctrine, there's no further state remedy. But that's not proper presentment, and that doesn't give the state court the opportunity to pass on the claim, there has to be meaningful opportunity. I,
6: I recognize there can be uh, procedural defaults that are not exhaustion. Procedural default is the larger category. Exhaustion is a subclass of procedural default, as as I understand your position. And that exhaustion means proper exhaustion, not mere presentment. Is that is that a correct statement of your position?
2: Correct. In other words, he.
6: And in this case. Uh, Could we resolve the case in your favor by saying that what we're concerned with here is exhaustion as a subset of different kinds of procedural defaults, and that the exhaustion here uh, was uh, not complied with because there was not proper presentment of the claim? I think, and maybe you have a different theory of the case.
2: No, I, I think in substance we're saying exactly the same. I think my terminology might be slightly different. In other words, I would reserve the word exhaustion for simply the presentment and say that uh, the question of proper presentment is what the default doctrine looks to. But I think in substance we're saying that that, uh, a default occurred here because it was time barred under a high law. Well,
6: then then you uh, would agree with the respondent that exhaustion is satisfied if there's mere presentment, even though it hasn't been properly exhausted. And you would say it's something other than exhaustion. You're telling me, please don't use exhaustion uh, as the as the as the basis for the decision in my favor. Use procedural default as some broader classification. Uh, well, I, I take it you'd be pleased with the judgment in your favor under any circumstances <laughs> absolutely
2: but but but, well, but, but,
6: but, but what, what what is the theory that you think is the proper one for us to adopt in, in this regard
2: well I think in my view it's analytically a little clearer to say that uh, exhaustion only asks for whether there's been presentment or alternatively it would be futile to present because the court's cases do say that exhaustion is technically uh, satisfied uh, if you can look to a rule like the Missouri rule and you know that it would be absolutely futile to present, you've satisfied exhaustion.
4: Is, is it the case that if, if I agreed with you, would I, is there, would I be accepting would I have to accept the following? There is a constitutional ground, unfair trial. It's blocked by an adequate state ground, and now the defendant asserts cause. There are many kinds of cause. This kind of cause happens to be an independent constitutional violation. Another kind could be an earthquake occurred and destroyed all the papers. A third kind could be that the State doesn't apply its own uh, 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 State ground fairly. You know, that's common. A fourth kind could be that the State rules no good anyway for 15 other reasons. Now, if I agree with you that they have — that the state can block consideration of that by saying you didn't apply the right state rules, you didn't satisfy the state requirements for raising that in state court, that applies to all these causes.
2: No. No, um, why not? Well, I think if I understand correctly, we're only saying that uh, the, the double default situation, if you will, the need to have two causes applies in a situation where it is the constitutional claim. And all we're asking for in this But how do
4: I how do I say that? How do I say, look, you say the reason you didn't raise your constitutional point on time. Why not? Because my lawyer was inadequate and that's cause. And you say, you have to make that claim one time itself, right?
2: In, correct. All right.
4: Now suppose my claim were Because the courthouse suffered a hurricane and all the documents were lost. Or suppose I say, because the state itself doesn't apply this rule fairly. Now, why isn't it equally open to you to come back and say, but you have to make that claim on time? Now, how how could I distinguish them? I'd love to be able to distinguish them, but I can't think of a way to do it.
2: Well, uh, Carrier answers that question. Carrier itself distinguishes between two kinds of causes one kind is where it's the independent constitutional claim here the sixth amendment claim and carrier's explicit as to that you have to have exhaustion as to the earthquake example carrier itself says that doesn't require exhaustion so carrier sets up this analysis in this case is an easy one under carrier because it's the exact same claim it's the same ineffective assistance of appellate counsel claims Sixth Amendment. So if there are difficult cases, given the line the carrier draws, this case isn't one of them. this case is the easy case because it's the same case as carrier. The only ruling that we're asking from this court in this case is that procedural default analysis accompany the carrier exhaustion requirement. Carrier exhaustion requirement already exists and and to reverse the Sixth Circuit is simply to say, that procedural default analysis must supplement that exhaustion requirement. And the reasoning for that is is the reasoning that this Court has always said that procedural default analysis should accompany an exhaustion requirement.
1: May I ask you uh, two two questions? the first question is, uh, "Am I correct in understanding that we don 't have a statutory problem in this case at all, as we do in the preceding case? This is basically a refinement on the doctrine that originated in Wainwright against Sykes carried to its logical conclusion it 's a, it's a judge made rule that we have to answer, so we can we have, we have our own decision to make rather than asking what Congress intended
2: absolutely that 's our exact understanding. And
1: my second question is. The underlying claim here, am I correct in in saying that the the failure to put in any evidence other than the statements of the prosecutors that supported the uh, uh, guilty plea, that the absence of of witness testimony, is that just a state law requirement or, or is this a federal constitutional requirement that there had to be something more?
2: To answer that question, we don't think there's a federal constitutional requirement. We don't think the claim has merit. As a federal claim, but we do think that federal claim has been asserted in this case, as we understand. I see. It, I see. But,
1: but is there is there just a just a, is there a state law requirement that uh, was perhaps missed in this case that that you only get to because it's you know for all these procedural reasons? Uh, I
2: want to. Is,
1: as to actual testimony to take a guilty deeply in a case of this kind.
2: I'd like to answer that in a couple of parts, if I might. First, there is a state statute that does call for witness testimony in this context. But our understanding of Ohio law is that there can be a waiver of that requirement of sworn testimony. And we believe that waiver occurred on the facts of this case. So we don't believe that there was a violation of Ohio law. Uh, we also think, based on the Engel case, that that State law claim cannot be independently cognizable in Federal habeas. But, but what's been presented is this alternative Federal alpha derivative claim. Um, th- just to, to say one more point about the State's interest, the, the argument here is that the State doesn't need to have uh, this inquiry take place in State court. And and we say that it does because, again, the state's interest in reopening a direct appeal is as strong as its interest in the appeal itself. In other words, what the state's process here is trying to do is is to use ineffective assistance as a vehicle to get to that underlying claim because it's the underlying claim that the state wants to reopen and have heard. And it's that interest that we think that the Sixth Circuit uh, has not uh, respected. And for that reason, we ask that the Sixth Circuit's holding be reversed. Uh, may I reserve uh, the Yes, record. you may,
0: Mr. Foley. Uh, Mr. Bodine will hear from you.
7: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Robert Carpenter's appellate in effectiveness claim is not procedurally defaulted. He presented it to the Ohio Courts in the manner in which he is entitled to under Ohio Rule of Appellate Procedure 26B. He presented it to the Court of Appeals and to the Supreme Court of Ohio. At the district court proceedings in federal habeas, Mr. Carpenter alleged that Rule 26B was inadequate. And in the alternative, he argued that if it was adequate — Are you talking about a rule — an Ohio Rule uh — Yes, Your Honor. Rule 26B is the process by which uh, Ohio defendants must challenge their appellate counsel's ineffectiveness. Mr. Carpenter specifically challenged that rule at the District Court proceedings, saying that it was inadequate. But he argued in the alternative that if that rule was adequate and could effectuate the default of his appellate ineffectiveness claim, he could present cause and prejudice for that default. The Warden did not defend Rule 26B at the District Court and never responded to the cause and prejudice arguments. Those are the same cause and prejudice arguments the Warden now asked this Court to force Mr. Carpenter to present. The District Court agreed with Mr. Carpenter that Rule 26 is inadequate because the good cause provision has not been consistently applied by the Ohio Courts. Um, The District Court also determined that Mr. Carpenter was denied the effective assistance of counsel and that he was prejudiced because of that. And accordingly, the District Court issued a writ of habeas corpus. On appeal before the Sixth Circuit, the Circuit did not reach the merits of Rule 26B, but indicated in dicta that it likely agreed that the rule was inadequate. The Sixth Circuit then agreed that Mr. Carpenter was denied the effective assistance of counsel. You
5: point out exactly where the Sixth Circuit did that because I don't recall it.
7: Your Honor, it's in uh, the Joint Appendix. Um, it's in a footnote 11 at page 64 — I'm sorry, uh, footnote 13, Your Honor, on page 65 of the Joint Appendix. Sixth Circuit stated in that footnote that it wasn't going to reach the merits of Rule 26B, but that it likely agreed uh, the rule was inadequate because the good cause provision has not been consistently well, how, applied.
0: how does that footnote bear on the question presented here, Mr. Buddy?
7: It — It bears on the question presented here, Your Honor, because unless the rule is adequate.
0: Well, but we, the the Court of Appeals didn't pass on it. Are you asking us to pass on it in the alternative?
7: No, Your Honor. The question that was presented here is whether a procedurally defaulted claim, may nevertheless be used as cause to excuse the default of a different merit claim. Right. There has been no Federal finding in any court that Mr. Carpenter's appellate ineffectiveness claim is procedurally defaulted. And our argument is, until there is a cognizable procedural default, Mr. Carpenter need not present cause and prejudice but the, arguments.
0: But the, the State raised that question in the Sixth, in the sixth Circuit, and the, as I understand, the Sixth Circuit said no you don't need to show you don't need to show that cause here for this kind of claim and that's the question we granted sir Shereri on.
7: whether a procedurally defaulted claim may nevertheless be used as cause. Right. Um, there's another reason, though. Even if this Court — Another reason for what? Another reason there, the question isn't adequately presented here, Your Honor, is because Mr. Carpenter well, has
0: — are, are you saying that, that the question presented that we granted certiorari on isn't adequately presented?
7: That's our first argument. Well, what, what does that mean? It means that there's no controversy in the, in the case. Mr. Carpenter has already done everything — the state is asking well, him to do this. I would in suggest
0: you pass on to your next argument. The
7: second argument that we're asserting is that the procedural default argument uh, should not be applied to cause arguments. Uh, cause arguments have always been uh, used to explain a procedural default, and in that context, this court has always been focusing on merit claims. All of this court's authority only applies the procedural default doctrine. To merit claim. How about Stewart versus LeGrand? Stewart versus LeGrand, as we note um, in the merit brief, Your Honor, was a case about waiver. Uh, Mr. LeGrand waived both his merit claim and his cause argument. Therefore, there was technically nothing for this court to review. Uh, the tail end of Stewart against LeGrand, this court did note that the cause argument was procedurally defaulted, but it was an alternative holding. Uh, If there were no merit claims and no cause arguments presented to this court, the court never could have reached that issue. Um, Just last term, though, in Strickler against Green, the court dealt with a similar structural um, argument with respect to a defaulted Brady claim. And in that case, the court held that a defaulted Brady claim and a defaulted cause argument could nevertheless be considered, even though the cause arguments themselves were not properly presented to a state court. The same analysis should apply here. Mr. Carpenter presented his claims. Um, He presented his cause claims, fully exhausted them, and did not procedurally default them. Um, It is immaterial at that point whether or not he must present cause and prejudice arguments if his cause argument itself, the second one, is not procedurally defaulted. Uh, Justice Breyer, you asked a question earlier about the perpetual abyss that we can get into with respect to these questions. Uh, and that's exactly what the court dealt with in and Bray- Strickler against Green. Um, no matter how many times that question was asked, the answer to why was the Brady claim defaulted was always the same answer. Because the state withheld evidence. There's only one way to get out of that loop either go to the merits of that claim or continue asking the question. We assert or argue that this court did the correct thing by not continually asking cause questions when the Court can go straight to the merits of the claim and resolve it at that point. Now, ineffective assistance of counsel is very similar to a Brady claim because those claims both ask two fundamental questions. Is there state conduct that must be attributed to the individual petitioner? And if so, has the petitioner been prejudiced because of that state conduct? If a Brady claim can be reached even though the cause arguments are themselves defaulted, then so should an ineffectiveness claim be reached when the answer is always ineffective assistance of counsel. I want to note two other points in the — I really
3: thought, counsel, that Murray versus Carrier um, indicates that um, the — that if the ineffective assistance of counsel claim — was procedurally defaulted, that uh, the Court can't go on and uh, reach the sufficiency of the evidence claim. I mean, that seemed clear to me from Murray. And what's been omitted is a determination about uh, whether the ineffective assistance claim was procedurally defaulted.
7: In this case, yes, Your Honor, Um, although the district court did hold that there was no default, uh, but this, that has been Circuit.
3: reviewed, has been pointed out.
7: By the Sixth Circuit, correct. I, I
3: don't right. see how the Sixth Circuit judgment can stand in light of Murray versus Carrier.
7: If th- that's the case, Your Honor, then the, the adequacy of the rule certainly would need to be resolved. But Murray against Carrier does say that um, before ineffective assistance of counsel can be asserted as cause, it need to be presented to um, the State Court it may rise to a level of a Sixth Amendment violation and an individual need be prejudiced by it. Um, Murray against Carrier does not say uh, that the procedural default doctrine applies to ineffective assistance of counsel. Um, and it's our position that an individual only need exhaust that claim or present it to the state courts before he can use it as cause in a federal habeas proceeding. Now, Mr. Carpenter went far beyond that. He didn't merely present the claim. He presented it to two separate courts, um, and the claim is not procedurally defaulted. Therefore, he should be permitted uh, to exercise that cause argument with respect to his underlying illegal plea argument.
1: May I ask you a question about the ineffective assistance of counsel claim? Uh, the basis for it, as I understand it, is that counsel just challenged a 30-year 30 30 sentence as opposed to a 20-year sentence and failed to tr- challenge the entire guilty plea uh, be on the ground that the evidence, no evidence was put in. Am I correct in assuming that had he done what you say he should have done and prevailed, then your client would have been
7: eligible for the death penalty? No, Your Honor. Mr. Carpenter was acquitted of the death penalty because in Ohio you cannot plead to the sentence in a capital case. The Court is required to go through the sentencing phase hearing, which is a judge or jury trial, depending on how it proceeds.
1: And I thought he only, he only was, uh, 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 eliminated the possibility of the death penalty by reason of the, the agreement with the State that enabled him to make this plea, and that if you set aside the plea, that would have put everything back to square one.
7: But- Honestly, that's how we get around the problem in Ohio. Um, You can plead guilty to a capital offense in Ohio, but the court cannot um, impose a prearranged sentencing or penalty. Uh, the Court always has to go through the evidentiary process of aggravating circumstances, the mitigating factors, balance them, and make an appropriate determination. Yes, but,
1: but he avoided all that by the right. deal that he, that he made. And it seems to me — and, and you're, you're telling me that you're, as a matter of Ohio law, if you prevail, he would not be exposed to the death penalty? Now.
7: Under Ohio law, if an individual goes to a sentencing phase and is essentially acquitted of the death penalty, the State may not that later on remand — well, charge no, him in. I,
1: but, I don't want a general answer, but what happened in this case, if the, if the proceedings in the trial court are vitiated and you start over again, you're telling me that there's something else happened that would make him ineligible to the death penalty?
7: If, if we were in that position, I would certainly argue that oh, okay. the sentencing phase, posit, penalty phase uh, proceeding was a, an adjudication. It seemed to me that the,
1: the, the counsel might well, even if he had a valid reason for attacking the Plea arrangement. It might have been a very sound strategy, just as it was in the initial uh, plea agreement, not to do that because he wouldn't want to risk the death penalty for his client.
7: Exactly, Your Honor. Yeah. And as I said, that's th- that type of arrangement is how the courts have permitted us to, um, to get around the, the problem with pleading guilty to a capital crime and then by default pleading guilty to the death penalty itself. Um, But, again, it's not implicated here. The problem with that culpability hearing was that there was absolutely no evidence presented whatsoever. I'm sorry,
5: I don't understand the answer that it's not implicated here, because one of the striking things about this case is the difference in the bottom line that the district court was just going to send it back to have another direct appeal. But the Sixth Circuit said, no, you go all the way back to square one, you have a new culpability hearing. A new culpability hearing implies that you wipe out the former one. And so it seems to me that what Justice Stevens was suggesting, that the prosecutor could say, fine, you wiped out the prior culpability hearing, no plea.
7: I was answering a different question, I think, Your Honor. What the district court did is stop short in its analysis and granted relief on the ineffective assistance and thereby required a new appeal. The Sixth Circuit held that the District Court should have gone one step further and actually granted the new culpability hearing. Now, at that point, um, I agree with you. The the question whether or not an individual can then be subjected to the death penalty is certainly — well, it hasn't been resolved in this case, definitely. Ohio law would support the fact that he may have been acquitted of the death penalty, but it has not considered it in the context of a guilty plea with um, a deal. So that's really I then worry.
4: agreed with you. Suppose I agreed with you on your point here. What's the, my bottom line supposed to be?
7: If you agreed with my point with respect to the cause and prejudice argument, Your Honor? Yeah. Then Mr. Carpenter has proved two constitutional claims, and he is entitled to a new trial.
4: Why? Because your basic claim, I take it, is a, is a claim, as you make it, that it, the Federal Constitution forbids uh, hold, finding a person guilty on the basis that the prosecutor recites the facts and he doesn't disagree. I've never seen a federal constitutional case that said that. The alternative way of looking at your basic claim is that the lawyer uh, gave him ineffective assistance by not raising that very point on appeal, which he would have won on under Ohio law. But then we run
7: into what Justice Stevens said, which is bothering me, too. So what's my bottom line? Two separate claims. Uh, the, The bottom line in your question, Your Honor, is go back and get the direct appeal. That way you don't run into a question of whether or not the — Yeah, but go
4: back and get the direct appeal under Ohio law. Why why you you — I I can't think that one through. Help me on that. Suppose I agree with you on your cause and prejudice claim, then Mm -hmm. what do I say?
7: Um, Because I'm
4: I'm not prepared to say that it's a violation of the federal mm -hmm. Constitution to have this procedure that Ohio doesn't like, but, but, you know — Maybe it's a violation of Ohio law, but but if it's a violation of Ohio law, the claim comes one of ineffective assistance at the first level, and I don't know about that one.
7: What what the Sixth Circuit said is is that the violation um, carried with it due process implications because Ohio has established a procedure to protect against uh, an inappropriate plea to a capital crime. Uh, That was the basis for the federal constitutional violation in the Sixth Circuit the due process implications that a state has set up a procedure that an individual avails himself on and then does not follow that procedure properly. Under that circumstance, the Sixth Circuit held, it was appropriate to go back to have a full culpability hearing. Uh, what about
4: what do you think of his responses to the two things that were worrying me on your cause and prejudice point? His first response was, there, of course, there is no infinite regress. It's possible to mm-hmm. — to, to, but he says, look, it's not really going to happen. that that you have uh, cause for not asserting the first claim. The cause was defaulted. And then you have — you try to assert cause there, and then they say that was defaulted. And then you try to assert cause there, and that was defaulted. He said that's imaginary. We're only talking about two levels here. And his other answer uh, was uh, not bad. He said that this applies only to instances where the cause happens — by coincidence, to be itself a violation of the Federal Constitution, because that's what Carrier dealt with. So don't worry about suddenly creating this kind of problem with all the other more common causes that are raised. What are you, what's, your, what's your answer?
7: On those two particular points, I actually agree, because in this case, no matter how many times the question is asked with respect to what is cause for the default, it is always the ineffectiveness of Mr. Carpenter's original appellate counsel. Secondly, uh, we also agree, and we we argued that in our merit brief, it's only the constitutional claims themselves that have to be presented to the States. If it's a non-constitutional claim, then there's no requirement that that cause argument be presented to the State. So in the earthquake example, that doesn't rise to the level of a constitutional claim. It certainly wouldn't have to go through the State system. And that's the difference here. Is there Harmony, any reason for that <coughs> distinction? I, the, the, the comedy doctrine, the, the, the interest in finality that a state has always asserted, has only ever result revolved around constitutional claims. State courts have an obligation to apply federal constitutional law. Therefore, they must be given an opportunity in the first instance to apply it. Uh, the Court has never extended it beyond that, I think, probably to accommodate situations like that, the unforeseen circumstance that would deprive an individual of presenting his claim fairly to the Ohio — to the State courts. Mr. Carpenter presented all of his claims to the Ohio courts in the manner in which he was permitted to do so under Ohio law. He demonstrated that he did that to two Federal courts. He demonstrated that the Procedural default of his underlying merit claim could be excused through the ineffective assistance of his appellate counsel. And he proved to two federal courts that he was, in fact, denied the ineffective assistance of his appellate counsel.
1: May, may I ask you another question about the appointment of counsel? Now, he's now represented by the Ohio Public Defender's Office. You're, you're a member of that, that office, aren't you? Yes, Your Honor. Was he also represented by your office in the, in the plea negotiations?
7: He was re- represented by a different public defender office. In, o- in Ohio, we have several different public defender type agencies. Mr. Carpenter was represented by the Franklin County Public Defender. Which does exclusively trial work and appeal work stemming from that. But they county. do, they,
1: they, that uh, co- county public defender does appellate work as well as trial work? For
7: Franklin County, Ohio.
1: Well, then when, when he got new counsel for appeal, was that a different lawyer within the Franklin County Public With, Defender's Office?
7: Within the Franklin County. And the Supreme Court of Ohio had a, has addressed that issue and said that that is acceptable. Um, they're technically different attorneys. Therefore, um, one may raise the ineffectiveness of the other. I see. I think that's the question you're getting at. Is it it's essentially the same individual who represented him through that direct appeal process?
1: But presumably there would be that those lawyers would talk to one another. It isn't as though a complete new stranger came into the case. There'd be some, ba- they share their files. And, and,
7: presumably, you know, Your Honor. And so at least
1: it's conceivable that whatever motivated the trial counsel to, to enter into the plea negotiation might also have motivated the appellate counsel not to
7: challenge the plea negotiation. Conceivably, but we're not aware we, of that. We, but we should treat them as different lawyers. Absolutely, Your Honor. Ohio law certainly does.
0: And you, um, your, your office, Mr. Bodin, is a state, state public defender.
7: We're statewide, Your Honor. And what we do is we um, represent individuals and in counties that do not have a public defender system set up um, especially in those smaller counties where there' are not enough appointed counsel uh, to represent individuals.
0: And so how did you happen to p- pick up this case? I w- I w- uh, just as a, uh, it has nothing to do with the merits of the argument. Uh,
7: we do a lot of outreach training, try to provide what support we can, your Honor. Uh, Mr. Carpenter's former counsel had worked with us throughout the federal court proceedings here and when the case was granted, uh, Mr. Bellay is a sole practitioner, uh, simply didn't think he could do both. Thank That's you. how we got the case. I uh, don't have any other questions. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mr. Bodine. Uh, Mr. Foley, you have seven minutes remaining.
2: A few brief uh, points. First of all, in response to Justice Breyer, one of your questions. The, the ineffectiveness claim is not independent basis for relief, given the current posture that the, the, the case is in. So, uh, if the Sixth Circuit view were to prevail, it could only be — only habeas relief could be granted would be on the, the plea claim. So uh, they can't assert the Sixth Amendment in effect claim without proceeding under a different track, because under the Sixth Circuit track, only the plea claim but, is — But given.
1: even under the Sixth Circuit view, if I understand it, there would have to be established that there was a federal constitutional violation at the plea agreement, not merely that violated Ohio law. Absolutely correct.
2: Uh, And also, uh, just to reiterate, we don't want to concede in any way that there was a violation of of Ohio law. And, in fact, the Court of Appeals, the Sixth Circuit, uh, remanded for some further proceeding on on this waiver issue. So we want to preserve that point. Um, I I thought I heard Mr. Bodine say, make the argument that was also in his brief that Exhaustion's enough in the Ohio context as opposed to the Missouri example that I gave you, where there's a strict 90 day deadline because, well, because the Ohio court could have passed on the claim because it has a limited narrow safety valve. And the only point I'd like to make beyond what's in our brief is that there shouldn't be any penalty for a state to have a limited safety valve of that kind. And indeed, in the Engel case that I mentioned earlier, This Court explicitly rejected the idea that cause and prejudice analysis does not apply in that context. The same kind of argument was made, uh, namely don't do cause and prejudice analysis, where Ohio had another very narrow safety valve, and this Court explicitly rejected that argument. So I think that takes care of that that issue as well. Um, uh, Mr. Boney mentioned the uh, Strickler case, the Brady case, as as an example where a constitutional violation can be its own cause. Uh, that that is true in the Brady context and, and it may in some facts patterns be true in the ineffective assistance context, and we don't dispute that. Again, all we're asking for here is that the cause inquiry take place. And there may be an example in a different case where you can use ineffective assistance as its own cause we don 't think that 's true in this case for a variety of reasons, but the only relief we 're seeking from this court is that that cause inquiry be undertaken that an explanation be be made um, and Finally, uh, the Justice Breyer again, uh, as to the distinction between the earthquake example and uh, and the carrier situation where it 's a constitutional violation, I think Mr. Boding covered this, but essentially. The state's interest here is to rectify constitutional error. So that's why it's important that if there's an allegation that ineffective assistance infected the original state appeal, that there be an opportunity for the state to correct that error when the state has its own procedure to do so, as it does here. That interest doesn't apply in the earthquake context. And so all we're asking is that when a a defendant doesn't take advantage of the process the state creates, that he be put to the explanation to explain why he didn't take the advantage. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mr. Foley. The case is submitted.
2: The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.